Welcome to the Black Cast. It is I, Christian Blatt, here uh, in the big boy chair, as always. And don't forget, you can follow the Black Cast on Facebook, like the Black Cast, on Twitter at Black Cast, B L A D T C A S T. And we have blackcast.com. Me, you can find me at Christian DMZ. Joined in the studio having a conversation with Patrick Meany, who is the filmmaker of Chris Claremont's X-Men, which is available, video on demand, Amazon, iTunes, anywhere else that I we should know that people can find it. That seems like where everything is. I, Comes I, down to on demand, Amazon, iTunes. Yeah, I think it's also on like the Microsoft store. Ba- basically anywhere you pay a small amount of money and watch a movie, it's available. <laughs> right. And it is a small amount of money. Yeah. You know, we're we're not trying to get people <laughs> to, you know, get Star Wars The Last Jedi. You know, that is not a small amount of money. No, I I think $3 will cover it. So just uh, dig up some change. Yeah, (laughs) there might be enough under the couch cushions, Mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it's uh, obviously for anybody who knows the Black Cast knows how near and dear to my heart the topic of Chris Claremont's X-Men would be. Mm -hmm. And uh, Patrick actually joined me on one of the AfterBuzz TV shows I host, Marvel TV Weekly. So uh, some of what he and I talk about here is going to be kind of retreading some of that ground, but uh, the nice thing is that we have a lot more time here to talk about everything. So uh, let's start off with you and your connection to the X-Men. You know, When do you find the X-Men, and what leads you to being in a position where you're like, I'm going to make a film about Chris Mm -hmm. Claremont? Um, Well, I I first discovered X-Men, I think probably like a lot of people who were my age, who kind of grew up in the 90s, uh, from the cartoon show. Right, of course. Which I think was... um, as a kid, I don't know if I was, like, an anomaly in this. I never really liked stuff that was for kids. Like, I always liked kind of, like... I never liked it when, like, the heroes just won because I was like, this is contrived. So I... I yeah, I mean, as a kid, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. When I was a kid, a, a lot of the shows were a lot simpler. So, like, my great superheroes on cartoon screens were the Super Friends and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And mm-hmm. there's some good qualities to those shows, and you get to see some good characters. But in the end... It was, the format was, all right, well, everybody wins. Nobody mm. dies or even really gets hurt. Yep. And we're also going to have everybody in the cast is going to laugh at the end of the episode for some reason. They always yes. all <laughs> laughed, mm. you know? And, uh, you know, so it, it, when the 90s came about, comic book cartoons got so much more sophisticated. Uh, with my other hosts here on the Black Cast who are usually with me, there's a little bit of debate. I personally feel that the X-Men animated series is the best of the crop, but however you rank them, you have some great Mm. animated series. You have X-Men, Spider-Man, Batman the animated series, and the Superman animated series. All so different than what we had had before that. Yeah, and I think it was, X-Men was particularly exciting because there was a little more of a kind of like heaviness to it or a little more dramatic weight, even though it was, you know, still like a cartoon for kids at the time. So I, I think it was exciting to have something where it wasn't always just like the heroes win. It's an easy thing. So I, I loved the concept. I always liked like sci-fi stuff. And then kind of from there, um, I just wanted to kind of see more. And I, I looked, I, I guess like a lot of comics fans, I always kind of like want to see the whole story. Right. So I was like, where did this all start? And a, uh, at the time they had some very cheap books called the essential X-Men books, right. which were like, 
$15, you got like 30 issues. And if I'm remembering those correctly, the insides were black and white, right? It basically looks like a phone book. Yeah. Yeah, it's black and white. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of not the greatest paper, but at the time it was great because you get a ton of content for a very cheap price, and it was, you know, starting right at the beginning of Chris Claremont's stuff with, you know, Giant Size X-Men, which he did not write, but right. then picked up. And went, you know, through his... 94 onward, yeah. Um, so. Which was great, because it, it was very exciting, I think, to see uh, kind of characters who had sort of, uh, by that time, already become kind of like archetypes, like Wolverine, like the cranky loner with the heart of gold, you know. <laughs> and it was interesting to see the characters develop and be more uh, kind of specific as, like, human beings rather than just, like... Uh, you know, a set of characteristics that is used to sell cartoons or comics or bed sheets or figures or whatever. Right. By the time that the cartoon comes along, it's very apparent that you can make money off of it. And in 1975, you're not really making money off of these characters other than the mm. sales of the book. And the sales of X-Men prior to that was so low that it actually just became a reprint book. It would just mm. reprint previous stories from older issues. So they took a gamble on this idea of the all-new, all-different X-Men. Yep. And it was this you know, diverse, multi-ethnic cast from around the world. Mm. And I think it was just like, sure, why not? And it, it, the crazy thing, it came out every other month, so you only got six issues a year. It's you pretty, know? <laughs> uh, seems like a long time to yeah. wait back then. Yeah, it, and it, it was a few years before they realized, like, oh, people are really buying this. Hey, let's mm. let's go ahead and come out every month now. And, and that was actually, I believe, one of the reasons why Dave Cockerham wasn't able to stick with it, the idea, because yeah. he had so much other work, was drawing the X-Men every month. It was like, well, that's a little too much. So yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of interesting that that sort of leads to, you know, John Byrne taking over ultimately. But I, it's, it's interesting because I do know so many people that the X-Men animated series was definitely the gateway into actually reading. Had you read comic books at all before that? Or? Um, not too much. I'd always kind of um, found it like a very kind of intimidating world to get into because there was so much, especially, I mean, in the 90s, like 90s X-Men is a, if you had read everything and knew what was going on, it's still like a mess. So it, it was not yeah. a great time to be like coming in as a new reader. Um, yeah, because I mean, in the mid '90s, you have like the Age of Apocalypse, which is an alternate reality. You know, Legion goes back in time, wants to kill Magneto. Whoops, kills Professor Xavier, and then you have like four months that felt like forever of just like, uh, you know, like I like alternate reality stuff. I just like to, you know, come back from it quickly. Yeah, it's it's very confusing. I think even just the um, sheer amount of characters and convoluted stuff. Yeah. So it, it, I think starting with the Claremont stuff was a great gateway. And then from there, it was very exciting because it was this whole world of stories that I hadn't read. So it's almost like if you discovered movies for the first time, and you're like, I just saw this movie, Casablanca. It's great. <laughs> and then people are like, well, what about The Godfather? Yeah. What about Star Wars? <laughs> so I I remember, like, I went to the library and I got, like, Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns. Oh, great. And yeah. it was just kind of, like, classic after classic. So it was very exciting. But I always, you know, wanted to read more of the Claremont stuff. And I wound up 
getting a bunch of like the back issues off eBay, which most of them at the time at least were not that expensive. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're not looking for you know the the mint near mint condition. No, I, I didn't yeah. really care. I, so I have this little thing that I do on the side where I like to work backwards. Mm. Uh, so you know the issues that I have that I read, I did buy a bunch of back issues, and then every once in a while I'm just like, oh, you know what? There's a cheap copy of Uncanny X Men, you know, one thirty four. Let me yeah. go ahead and get that. So I just I like to get the the previous issue and I do that and yeah they're out there people are looking to you know declutter yeah and because so much is available digitally too I guess there's probably not quite the same kind of demand that there was I think they've been reprinted more frequently now so it's kind of like I mean the the paper quality is frankly not that great. No, and the coloring not, can not look until a you get weird. to the mid nineties. Actually, yeah, yeah. That, at that point, they they have the glossy paper mm-hmm. and and that holds up. But yeah, that newsprint, especially when you're flipping through the issues from the seventies, you're like, yeah. this this paper is older than I am mm-hmm. and uh, you know in worse shape than I am, which I guess is good to say about <laughs> my own conditioning. Yes, you're aging better than <laughs> I'm a aging comic better. Book. I'm aging better than Uncanny X Men one forty eight. <laughs> but I think that for me. I sort of come in at a very odd time, and I've Mm. talked to Chris Claremont about this when I uh, had the privilege to talk to him a few years ago, that the first issue I read is Uncanny X-Men number 176, which Mm. is not memorable for any reason at all. Cyclops fights a giant squid out in the water. He's just married Madeline Pryor, who we eventually find out is a clone of Jean Grey, which Mm. she always looked like a clone of Jean Grey, so it wasn't really a shocker. But And that's really the issue, and there's like one page where they set up the what's going on with the Morlocks. And I was like oh, I'm, I'm really interested I'm so confused but I really yeah. want to see it. it's such an odd choice but I got to finally read the old back issues when they started doing classic X-Men I believe yep. 87, 88 is when that started mm-hmm. so I finally got to see these stories and yeah, yeah. the fact that it had originally been bi-monthly meant that you caught up a little bit at first and you know through the Dark Phoenix saga which uh, you know, I always knew about. Yep. I knew how important it was. I knew what happened, but to actually be able to read it uh, was exciting. And mm. yeah, just being able to go back and find all this stuff that you're like, well, I know, I know what I'm reading now is good. You know, the period where I was most reading the X Men's like right around 1984 is when I'm making sure I get it every month. Yeah. You know, so this is like 185, 186. Like uh, shortly thereafter, I subscribed because I was like, I can't miss an issue. Yeah. And where I lived was largely rural. It was like right where the suburbs of New York start to get rural in Orange mm. County, New York, a little town called okay. Greenwood Lake. So... I was just like I, I I can't I can't miss Uncanny X Men and I can't miss Amazing Spider Man so I yep. subscribed to those and uh, so that was the time period and then being able to go back and sort of see like you're talking about like oh Wolverine is not that well formed yeah. you know and he I mean if you read the there was like a one shot where they reprinted the two issues of Incredible Hulk that he appeared in you mm-hmm. know 181 and it's just like oh yeah they, they have no idea what they have here they yeah. don't know what an asset this character is well Chris talks about in the film how he at the time he started the book the idea was not that he had claws embedded in him it was that it was like gloves with right. claws on it and then he was like oh wouldn't it be cooler if they actually like came out of his fingers yeah, um, and and sort of the interesting thing, it's not a Chris storytelling moment, but you know, years later when they do a storyline where Magneto rips the adamantium out of him, there's this realization that he still has the claws without yeah. the adamantium, that the, he had the bone claws. Yeah, yeah. So there, it's interesting that they're every once in a while they're able to be like, you know what? There's one more thing we can actually do with that. Yeah. And I guess for Chris, over 17 years, you know, I think he talks a lot about it in the film about trying to keep it interesting. Mm. But talk a little bit about how he was able to approach it. You know, he had this 
he talks about how he had this tabla rasa. He could really yeah. do whatever he wanted. It was a low-selling book that they're like, yeah, sure, let's see what happens. And Len Wein didn't have the time. Yep. And so that's such a great opportunity for him. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think what was very unique is that um, this was a whole bunch of new characters, except you know, there were a few older ones, but it was basically him getting to write a whole bunch of new characters and really invest in building these characters and building this world. And I think the biggest difference um, from what we've seen since or before was that Chris really got to create his own essentially corner of the Marvel universe. Like the series never rarely interacted with characters outside of the X-Men world. And he basically built up, you know, a maybe like 100th character, you know, how 200 characters, yeah. large world of uh, that was all interconnected. And as the time went on, they added more titles like New Mutants and stuff. But he was in charge of it, and he really shaped the characters. And I think his biggest interest, which is an anomaly in comics, was in changing the characters and letting the characters evolve, which is... Like, Batman doesn't really change. I mean, you can go from, like, 60s Batman to Dark Knight Returns Batman, but it's not like the character himself actually changed. It's just the writer's riff on him in different ways and from different perspectives. Yeah, and I think that there, even in the Marvel Universe, there are a lot of characters that don't change as much. I mean, they've... You know, they've gone and changed who Spider-Man is a couple times, but for the most part, he's pretty much the same. They had him married, yeah. they had him not married. You know, that you can change little things about him. Yeah. For the most part, he's usually the same. I mean, he's the, bumbling. Yeah. You know. The the big change being the black costume. That was like the one thing that they did in like 1985. Yeah. And other than you know things in his personal life, you know, it, it's he's been fairly consistent. Yeah. There there was always sort of like a Stan. I think it's a Stan Lee quote where it's like you want to change enough that it feels this you want to give the illusion of change essentially you want to give people the sense we're going somewhere but never go too far from the core concept and i think with chris what's interesting is if you actually read the series as one work which is yeah. what he intended and he talks about this in the film as well he intended it as one gigantic you know 180 issue story and if you read it that way it hangs together and there's a lot of change and a lot of characters moving in and out and subtle character growth on people like especially like magneto storm and wolverine i think are the yeah. biggest who go through like real real changes and if you read them in the first issue they appear and kind of you know 150 issues later you could tell it's the same it's the same person underneath but they've gone through so many changes and that's what was most interesting for me i think to see kind of these characters who are you know as time has gone on become more and more part of like the cultural mythos as people who changed and were actually written as, you know, characters as opposed to kind of more like most comic characters are written where it's like you're just kind of riffing on something, a classic archetype. Right. And one of the most interesting changes is Professor Xavier. And, mm. you know, recently for a, an episode of the Black Cast, it, it was episode 265. We just focused on the Dark Phoenix saga. Yep. So I reread those books for the first time in a while. And I forgot, like, oh, yeah. Professor Xavier's still kind of a dick at this point. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, I can't believe I've been gone. Look at the way Cyclops is running the team. Yeah. And I was like, you know, they were doing fine without you. Yeah. They actually don't need you. These are these are adults. Yeah. You know? And I, you know, he really evolves shortly thereafter. You know, he, mm. he's 
he has love in his life. Yeah. He briefly has the use of his legs. You know, there's there's a lot of things that change with him. And he's not a character that I really think of as having changed. Yeah. You know, Wolverine, they did a great job with, you know, they sort of dug away, like chipping away at the wall in the Shawshank Redemption. Little yeah. tiny bits of his backstory. Yeah. And when you got something, you're like, wait, what's this? Mm. This is amazing. Yeah. You know, and I think that it's true that the change is good. Uh, one of the things he talks about in the film is... Some of the plans that he had, which yeah. kind of abruptly had to put the brakes on. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating that he had it planned out for, let's see, so in uh, Uncanny X-Men 150, uh, Magneto sinks a submarine. Uncanny yep. X-Men 200, there's a trial of Magneto. And then that sort of begins a slow rehabilitation of him. Yeah. By number 300, he wanted to kill Professor Xavier. And then Magneto was going to be like, I have to take over for my friend's work. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about what he said about that and how, of course, he was not able to, you know, other yeah. f- other factors intervened about why he couldn't change Magneto that much. Well, I, I think it was... Interesting because his the status quo that we think of the X Men is kind of like a bunch of people in the mansion. Professor X is in charge, and it's you know uh, they're fighting Magneto. But this is very rare, actually, in his run. Most of the time, Professor X is gone. He's either in space or he's injured or he's walking around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as the run went on, the intention was for Magneto to kind of take over the role of Xavier as the mentor. And to some degree, he does that for a bunch of time in New in Mutants, Mutants yeah. um, and kind of crosses over. Yeah. But yeah, the idea was in number 300, which was, uh, would have kind of, I think been around the end of Chris's run. I think Yeah, because he, he finishes in 280, so he yeah. didn't miss it by much. He was looking to leave. Yeah. I think he was like, number 300 will be enough. Um, so the idea was basically that Xavier would die and that uh, Magneto would take over and that would be the new status quo. But at the time, there was a lot of pushback from kind of the hot image artists who were becoming the sort of drivers of sales like Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld. Todd McFarlane. And, you um, know, the, these that's the time period where, in my reading comics, where initially I, like, really like these new artists. Yeah. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. It is cool. pretty if you read... If you jump from kind of uh, the books that were being published a couple of years before to Jim Lee, it is you're like, wow, like this is a huge leap in terms of just kind of like the energy and dynamic yeah, nature. Yeah, I, I think that the artist who immediately preceded him was Mark Silvestri. I think he had a great style. I think it looked good, especially for the X-Men stories that they were telling yeah. at that point. I think he got kind of burnt out and he was doing it. I mean, if you know him today, he's like a very, he takes his time. He's yeah. not putting out a lot of stuff. So a monthly book I think was so draining that he couldn't, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's like you're drawing 22 pages and on those pages are, you know, sometimes as many as six separate images. So I can see that being a problem. Um, What I was going to say was that, you know, you have the Jim Lees, the Tom McFarlane's, Rob Liefelds, and their storytelling styles are really focused on the art. And you have quotes in this movie and I've heard about it from other uh, other artists who've worked with writers that they sometimes would draw something that the story didn't actually call for and then yeah. the story would have to be adapted to fit it. Uh, Rob Liefeld I think pretty much says this or maybe Louis Simonson says it about Rob Liefeld. Yeah I think yeah. there was some I mean Liefeld you know history has kind of vindicated him in that yeah. like Deadpool is obviously a huge success Cable and all the characters he created are going to the screen now and yeah. are very popular Um but I think it was the artists themselves, I think, had kind of a desire to draw like the X-Men they loved as kids. So yeah. I think they really pushed to bring Xavier back and kind of get all the old characters together 
Because at the time, Chris was doing some very weird bunches of characters. We had Dazzler and Psylocke and Longshot. Well, yeah. yeah, and yeah. even after that, they had, like, uh, Forge and, like, oh, yeah, Banshee Forge. and, yeah. like, uh, eclectic bunches of kind of well, forgotten characters. And you'd also, you'd spun off the original X-Men into X-Force. You had Excalibur, where Kitty, Nightcrawler, and ultimately Colossus, I believe, all ended up. And Rachel, uh, Rachel Summers, yeah. Phoenix 2. So a lot of the characters that, like, you knew and loved yeah. were not together anymore. So the idea was basically they wanted to bring all the characters back they wanted to make Magneto bad again yeah. and they wanted the people operating out of the mansion and I think like my read on this this whole thing is it's kind of Marvel was becoming more corporate and didn't want wanted to be able to sort of license their book they wanted to be able to have something that the X-Men was about not about like Forge wandering around in like a dreamlike recreation of Vietnam or something <laughs> like that wasn't the X-Men that they could sell because yeah. that was confusing to some yeah um, and they started the new x-men title which yeah. is still the best-selling comic of all time i believe it's eight million sold x-men number one yeah and claremont writes only the first three episode yeah. or three issue arc of that series and then he's gone and i think that was sort of the idea it's like well if it's a number one first of all especially at this time period number ones were like oh my god there's a number well, one well there had have been it. one in you know whatever 280 issues yeah. so it wasn't like today where you know it's there's a number one every six months or something yeah there, exactly so it, w it was a big deal and he kind of gave the impression like well you know you could start with this if yeah. you want to just go ahead and dive in here i mean it's very confusing yeah. i'll say like if you read it it's not a great starting point since it, it basically is the wrap-up of this entire you know 17 year yeah. saga and i i don't think it's a perfect wrap-up but i think if you read them all through it, it it is kind of satisfying it's a big sort of like action movie kind of like blowout style yeah and, you know, at the time, it wasn't clear that he was leaving or even mm. that he had left right away. You know? Well, there's they, very, I think there's like one little note, like, thanks, Chris, yeah. in the last issue. And and uh, you're like, well, what does that mean? Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's nothing else about it. You know, there there wasn't the, you know, there wasn't the internet to keep you, yeah. to let you know that this was coming months in advance. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, it's just, uh, you know, with X-Men number four, you're just like, all right, well, Jim Lee's still here. And eventually uh, John Byrne helps out with some scripting. And it's interesting, though, because it's funny what you're talking about, how they wanted to draw the X-Men from their childhood. And the one thing that bothered me most about this period right after Chris left is I hate the yellow Wolverine costume mm. with the stripes on it. I love the brown one. I just thought it looked cool. And yeah. I know John Byrne hated it. He he hated the yellow one. That's yeah, why yeah. he was just like, can we give him something else? And I was just like, well, why would he go back? Yeah. And that's the reason. And it's yeah. funny because I don't remember if that was actually said in the film. But, uh, well, that it makes sense that uh, he's just like, well, I'm in charge now. And Wolverine's a bumblebee again. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it is kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, there's a lot of creative people will sort of backtrack to talk about during the successful, you know, the huge part of Chris's run. But talk a little bit about some of this interference, some of the, the headbutting that mm. he just kept running into. And at some point, it was just not worth it to him, right? Yeah, well, I, th I think early on, it, it's hard to kind of remember now, but it, it was a very, like, underground title. And I think it was also a very, like, artistically acclaimed title. Like, there's a lot of, if you look in the past, like, comics journal articles about the series and stuff. So, which it seems unusual now because it, it's seen as such a big, you know, mainstream yeah. title. But it was... A time in comics when, like, Alan Moore was just coming out and kind of they were segueing from sort of the more Stanley era to the more modern era. And I think it was a very, you know, it was an artistically, like, adventurous book. And obviously Dark Phoenix was hugely successful. But I, I think it started out underground. So Chris could kind of do whatever he wanted. And as the series went on, it became more successful. 
and he's starting to get more pushback kind of from higher ups. So in, in some senses that was good. Like in Dark Phoenix, there was a major argument over how the story should end, and it led to ultimately the phoenix being killed right because chris even talks about this and i was aware of that from other yeah. interviews that she wasn't going to die yeah which and i think wouldn't have been a good ending it's such a and we you know we talked about this on the episode about dark phoenix saga is just it, it's such a great story because of those stakes and the self-sacrifice at the end yeah. and it's it, it really is it's an it's an epic comic book story i just tell people i'm like look for me that's the best comic book story ever mm. told that arc right there i'm sure there's other great ones and yep. you know there's plenty that i didn't read so who knows <laughs> but for me it's just it, it's got everything you yeah. know and and it's sort of this great parade of some of the X-Men from the past are in that story. Yeah. You know, well, everybody except Iceman. I still don't understand why Iceman doesn't show up till Gene's mm. funeral. But, you know, Beast comes back and Angel's there. And it's yeah. like, well, this is great. This is kind of what you want. And it's such an important story. And, yeah, if, if in Uncanny X-Men 138, well, Gene's alive and they're just going, all right, here's a new set of adventures. Uh, you know, and Cyclops yeah. leaves right after that. It's it's so it's there's so much of an impact yeah. that that happened, and the stories that immediately follow that are well. I mean, the crazy thing is, right, just a few months after the Dark Phoenix saga, you have Days of Future Past, which yeah. is sort of this other. You know, it's only a two issue story, but it's such a, a key moment in mm. the series, and also got turned into a movie. Yeah, you know, and it's it's so interesting that they have this, and if. Gene doesn't die. I, I don't know. You you don't. I don't know where they go. Honestly. Well, I, I think Gene wasn't a very interesting character until she became the Phoenix. So yeah. if she's not the Phoenix anymore, it's not that exciting. Yeah. Um, but so so after that, there was some kind of clashes along those lines. But the biggest issues were when they started wanting to do more spinoff books because the book was so popular. Yeah. So they started with New Mutants, which was Chris written and was very much tied into the ongoing X Men stuff. And I think is. You know, a very successful book, especially with Bill Sienkiewicz art. There's some, like, wild, really cool uh, issues of that book. Yeah, and I was about nine when Bill Sienkiewicz started, so I, I was just like... I, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. What is that supposed to be? <laughs> you know, I'm like, the covers look kind of cool, but yeah. I'm just like, who's that? And you know, I'd point it at the panel. I'm like, is, is that Eliana? I, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. And uh, is that Dazzler? Because that, you know, you just don't know. And uh, I think that when it's not printed on that terrible newsprint, if you see it, or even if you see it digitally now, it does look really cool. Yeah. But, you know, I don't know. I was just used to sort of. I mean, you know, it's a pretty jarring transition yeah. from like the most like silver agey looking art to these very experimental stories. Um, yeah. But I, I think it was a, you know, shows that like Chris was not just retreading the same stuff in this new book. He was doing some kind of experimenting still. And, and Yeah. I mean, you had, you know, the, the demon bear and just sort of, you know, all these things that are very different. Yeah. And it looked so different, yeah. you know. And so he, he does that and he, he talks about this in the film that he's still trying to kind of hold on to the reins because yeah. he also writes Excalibur. He writes the Wolverine standalone book, when yeah. it, for, not the miniseries, but the ongoing series. And even um, with X-Factor was a big issue because they resurrected Jean Grey against his wishes, yeah. which was a very you know big uh, slap in the face to him. But eventually Louise Simonson took over that and kind of made it make sense, even yeah. though they spent like, issues and issues and issues trying to justify why Cyclops runs away from his like infant wife and infant son. Yeah, which is is an interesting thing because that's always sort of one of these things that it it the X factor 
the ongoing series, the return of Jean Grey, turned Cyclops into somebody that he just had never been before. Yeah. You know, the fact that, you know, he leaves Madeline, I guess it's right after uh, Nathan Charles Summers is born. And he he's just like, oh, wow, this is so great. Oh, my God, Jean's alive. And he runs yeah. off. And he just leaves her. And, you know, you don't blame Madeline for becoming the Goblin Queen, you yeah. know, like a few years later. I think it's like they – because Chris talked about um, the original intent was that Madeline just happened to look like Jean. And it yeah. was like a, a fluky, you know, occurrence. And Cyclops would just live happily. So the, in this case, they had to spend – like tons and tons of stories to justify these decisions that were made um, yeah. as a result of editorial bringing a character back who perhaps shouldn't have come back in a way that was and detrimental. When you think about it, in real world time, well, she was only dead for six years. Yeah. You know, so it's, and, and in comic book time, it was, I don't even know if that's a year. I, I never quite know how much time passes for the characters. Mm. But at, it's just, it was so quick that they brought her back. Like, if they brought her back 10, 15 years later, you're like, all right, look, you gotta, you know, you gotta yeah. just tell more stories. But she came back so quickly, and she hadn't been dead that long. And Marvel had always kind of prided themselves on, look, when somebody dies, they They're stay dead. dead. Yeah. Sure, there are Gwen Stacy clones, and you deal with things like that. But... Gwen Stacy has never come back from life, uh, back to life, you know? Yeah. Again, you can have clones, but that's not the same thing. So it, I can see how that would bother Chris so much, which is interesting because he seemed resistant to the idea of yeah. killing her in the first place. But once he'd settled on it, he's like, yeah, this is great. Well, the thing he said, which like I totally agree with, is once you bring back a character from the dead like this, you everything has less consequences because you know it can be manipulated and you sort of break the faith with the world, which I think Marvel, certainly in the comic book side, has done to a lot of readers at this point where, I mean, everybody's died. Captain America died, Thor died, etc. Like, everyone has died so many times, it's not even a thing anymore. It's not even something you, where you emotionally care. If a character dies now, you're just like, okay, well, I wonder how long it is before they're yeah. back. You're probably like, well, somebody else you will know. be them for a little bit, then they'll come back in a couple years. So it's Yeah, even the original Captain Marvel, who, if I remember correctly, died of just like cancer. The first mm -hmm. graphic novel was Death yep. of Captain Marvel. Even he came back at some point. You're just like, so nobody's going to stay dead. I don't know, even characters that no one's demanding, you know? I can understand yep. you're like, oh, we're going to do the original X-Men. Oh, we need Gene. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's interesting because you start to see sort of the – it gets a little frayed around the edges for Chris. I yeah. mean, he's, he's writing four or five books. So, yeah, I think as it, as it kind of went on, Marvel became more corporate. I think you can see – like one of the things for me that I wanted to try to get across with the film was like in, in our society as a whole, I think you saw in kind of like the 50s, especially 60s, 70s, corporations – gave a lot more benefits and people had a lot more pensions. They had a lot more kind of investment from the corporation and people generally kind of kept one job. So you might work at the phone company your whole life and then you'd get a pension and you could support your whole family off this. And I think for Chris at Marvel, it was kind of a similar environment where he's working at Marvel. He doesn't own these characters. He would walk away with nothing if he leaves, but he's invested in the characters. He's invested in the company and he feels like the company's, you know, invested in him and as we got into the end of his run, Marvel became more corporate and they became very driven by the quarterly profits and kind of getting issues to sell more through artificial means by, you know, variant covers or foam, 
foil covers or whatever. Yeah, the the collectible card in there and the bag. This, this yeah. these are all things that started to kind of wear away at me. Yeah. You know, when there would be variant covers, I would just like, all right, well, I'm just gonna get whatever the regular one is. Yeah. And then if it's in, if it comes like pre-bagged, I'm like, well, I'm gonna open it because I want to read what's inside. And that's the sort of thing was like, yeah. Well, what's inside is actually not as good what you used to get. So yeah. maybe leave it in the bag mm. and don't read it. Um, but it it really you just there's so many changes and you know Marvel look had been sold I think a couple of times by that point and there's a short stretch of yeah. time where New World Pictures is their owner yeah and and then I, if I remember correctly Revlon or something With like Ron Perlman Ron Perlman not that's what the it is. actor not... the guy from who owns Revlon yeah <laughs> by the way if Ron Perlman the actor had owned it that probably would have led yeah. to some really interesting content um, but yeah so I think it, it's interesting I mean I think you could certainly draw like analogies to like the financial collapse of 2008 where basically they artificially raised the value of these comic books to the point where it was unsustainable in the pursuit of greater and greater quarterly earnings to justify their stock price and then a massive crash happened but along the way for the the purposes of what we're concerned about chris got the boot because despite having put in all this time he wasn't driving the sales. It was Jim Lee, it was Liefeld, or Marvel perceived it was the characters, who many of whom had he had created. Right, and I think that in the immediate wake of Chris leaving, I think that the stories were fairly well sustained. They were still interesting, but there is a certain point where it kind of starts to it starts to lose something, and I, I can never put a finger on what it is. All I know is that I continued to I stopped reading most comics, but I continued to buy Uncanny X Men mm. and regular X Men, and it got to a point I think it was in 1999. I had like two years worth in a box. I'm like, well, I'm not reading them, yeah. so why am I still buying them? Out of the sense of loyalty, yeah. so I don't even know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. And I mean, I've talked to other people that sort of fell off around a similar time. Yeah, and you know, I've I've read some things here and there, you know, standalones and things, but I don't really feel like I miss it, because when I talk to people mm. who keep up, you're just like, well, that sounds really convoluted, and yeah, I, it, I, I don't know how happy I would be if I was reading that. I think uh, for a long time after, it was just people kind of riffing on what Claremont did, so they yeah. did like Days of Past Future, or Days of Future Present, or what have days you. Days of Future Future, you know. Yeah, yeah. so I think it was, it's like a cover band to me. Like, if you go <laughs> to see, you know, somebody covering, whatever, Led Zeppelin, you know, maybe that's the best you can get. Maybe it sounds really cool, but it's not the authentic experience, and you have like a, an artificiality. Yeah, to it. you're like, I do like these songs. These are good songs. So someone else playing them, they're playing a good song, but it's like, yeah, it doesn't sound quite right. Yeah, that, that seems like a, a great comparison. Mm. Um, the interesting thing is that Chris goes back a few times, and I yeah. know you don't talk to him about it, at least not in the film. Did yeah. you talk to him about that at all? Uh, when you interviewed a little him? bit. Well, he was doing. Um, I think it was called X-Men Forever, where he sort yeah. of like picked up where he left Right, off those I've read, which is kind of interesting because he gets to do like sort of an alternate history, yeah. you know, alternate reality. Like, here's what I would have done, which... You God love him. I doubt that's what he was going to do. I don't think, I don't, I don't think he's yeah. going to kill Wolverine two months into the you know yeah. into the run. But it's fun that he got to do that. But then he wrote some stretches on the actual Uncanny X Men yeah. after that. And did he just seem to think that it was fun to do? Or I, I mean, I think for it's interesting because for me as like a, a reader of his, I'm. I sort of feel very frustrated, and I'm almost like, why aren't you more angry? Or like, want, he seems very like. Uh, reluctant to kind of claim credit for what he did yeah. when to me it's like you made the X-Men like all this stuff comes from you but he's always you know uh, eager to say oh Len Wein did this or whoever else did this Yeah, and it, I mean I think that's a 
a good attitude to have for him. But if I was him, I think I would be more frustrated because I'd be kind of like, I made all this stuff. Nobody knows who I am. You know, nobody kind of gives me the credit that I think he deserves because to me, it is a very like auteur book. Everything, every X-Men movie, every X-Men comic since is riffing on his sort of specific world and the kind of themes and characters he created. Yeah, and I I would say, and I've said this many times, that the reason why the X-Men animated series works so well is that those are Chris's stories. Mm -hmm. And when they did their adaptation of the Dark Phoenix saga, I I think he got a story by credit because it was so close to the story. So it's like, you have to. And, you know, a lot of times they don't, you know, you don't see the comic book writers actually get credit. Because they don't, I don't, I think especially at the time they didn't need to legally because it's just based on characters from Marvel. But at the same time, you're just like, well, you know what, this is such an iconic story. And, you know, those, I, those five episodes of the Dark Phoenix Saga were so much better yeah. than the Dark Phoenix Saga movie that we got X Men: yeah. The Last Stand, and now the Dark Phoenix movie that was supposed to come out in November yeah, that delayed. gets pushed back till like February, yep. and now the New Mutants movie has been pushed a couple of times. Way, so you, way pushed. Way it's pushed. Supposed to be out, I think, it, next week. Yeah, and now it's not going to be out till I think uh, next August. Of uh, next August. Yeah. So yeah, it's a long push. There, so look, there's a. A lot of reshoots. Reshoots happen in movies all the yeah. time, but you get worried when you hear that. You're like, I was counting on that being great, the Dark yeah. Phoenix movie, and wow. now I'm nervous again. Yeah. Uh, but it, it it really it has so much to do with how great these stories were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I think a lot of it, the challenge of adapting them in a, sort of a movie format, is that a lot of what I think people like, and for me that I really liked, was the sense of you're watching these characters' lives. So they'd have the ups and kind of the more exciting stuff of the Dark Phoenix saga, but then they'd have some downs and kind of more normal adventures or just kind of like day-to-day moments and slice of life. And I think it's that variety that made them feel more real. Um, you can't just be all highs, and that yeah. kind of movie has to be. I mean, one be. of my favorite stories, I think it's Uncanny 153, is Kitty's bedtime story. And yep. she tells Ileana this story, and there's like this, the cartoon Nightcrawler, the Banffs, yeah. and, and the, the little Wolverine. And, you know, there's a, there's a great... Dave Cockrum standalone Nightcrawler miniseries from mm-hmm. the mid '80s, where you actually see all him, you see Nightcrawler interacting with all these characters. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a fun revisit of that. But yeah. I love that story. That might actually be my favorite standalone issue mm-hmm. of the X Men, just because it's like, what's well, fun? Yeah, and it would be fun sometimes, and you feel like. I mean, I, again, I don't read comics regularly now. You feel like it's very rarely fun. I love yeah. that they would, you know, on the weekends, they would just, like, you know, play baseball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they're practicing in the danger room, they're working on the fastball special. They're just, yeah. you know, developing these things. I'm like, you feel like they're friends, yeah. you know? Then when you start to look at it later, it's like, well, these are soldiers that are in the war together. And it's not it's not the same. And look, not yeah. that there can't be a bond like that, but you just feel like these are people that are together because they have to be. Yeah. And I loved the sense of family yeah. you know amongst these characters I, I think that's what was so special about it like for me that the, the uh, film or TV show that comes the closest to actually capturing what Claremont's X-Men is like is Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I think it was the same where it's focused on kind of like more ordinary people and they have these like crazy adventures and huge you know world yeah. ending struggles but then it's kind of have some down times and ordinary stuff and I think that's what you can't capture in a movie because the Dark Phoenix saga hinges on like years of subtle development and watching yeah. Gene kind of subtly change and get lured in by Mastermind and even the whole uh, Cosmos, uh, you know, Shi'ar thing. Like you can't do that in two hours. And 
Yeah, and and you know you can barely do it in five episodes of an animated show, but yeah. they they did a, an impressive job. Yeah. The uh, the thing about you know all all of these different stories and the characters being like family and so mm. important. One of the things that I loved in your film, and I noticed it when I interviewed him, he calls the characters Logan and Charlie yeah. and Aurora. He uses, they're like his friends. And yeah. I, you know, it's very natural. It doesn't feel forced. You know, that could feel kind of convoluted if somebody yeah, yeah. did that. And you're just like, well, no, that's who they are. And I just love hearing him talk about them. Yeah. You know, and you feel like for all intents and purposes, I mean, these are his friends. You know, I yeah. mean, there's, to some extent, there's children, which you don't want to get too carried away. But I mean, in all honesty, that it has to feel that way to yeah. some extent. I mean, he spent so long in that world, and I think that he really, um, you know, views him that way. And, and it was always, all the stories were kind of driven by illuminating character. And I think especially the best ones, like the, my favorite era is sort of the Paul Smith era, when it's, yeah. it's very low key, and there's some. It's like Wolverine's getting married and Storm gets the mohawk and it's very kind of just character based and especially like the art is beautiful. It really holds up to this day, but it's not as dramatic. It's not necessarily like a great place to jump in, even though I think it sounds like that, you did that's, jump that's in. That's where there. I jumped in. Well, I think uh, John Romita Jr. had started right by the time. That, that was, I, I think, was, like the last Paul yeah. Smith was so, around then. Yeah, so, but at, at the same time, that is the time period, and it's it's not a great time to, to start. Mm. But when you read them in the context of all this, yeah, that is a great time period. And I think that in the film, Chris talks about something that I do remember, because uh, when the, the movie The Wolverine came out, I yep. reread the Wolverine miniseries, the mm. Frank Miller, Chris Claremont miniseries, and some of the issues around yeah. it, and the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, mm. which is another favorite of mine. And I was reminded of when I saw when I read those that Paul Smith is so underrated as an uh, artist yeah. because, you know, it's like Dave Cockrum created it, John Byrne, everybody knows John Byrne, and then, you know, John Romita Jr., and you have mm -hmm. all these other artists that come later. But it's like right in the middle, you do have Paul Smith. And Chris talks about a panel where Storm uh, is introducing Rogue to Logan, and everybody yep. knows who Rogue is because yep. she's been this this villain who you know didn't kill Carol Danvers, Ms. Marvel, but yeah. you know really messed Wasn't her up. <laughs> and she's sort of she's shy, she's biting her lip, which is really hard to to draw, you yeah. know, on a on especially on newsprint. Yep. And it just he's able to capture that. Yeah, and. You know, one of my favorite issues from that era, because Kitty is one of my favorite characters, is mm. the Professor Xavier is a jerk issue. Yep. And there's so much emotion that he's able to get in there. Yeah. And I, I'm not saying that plenty of other artists don't, but he was perfect for the tone of that time well, period. Well, I, I think also it's interesting that Chris did suit the stories to the artists. And it, it, he has a reputation for writing a lot of captions and dialogue and stuff yeah. and in the paul smith there's a lot of silent moments and a lot of moments that are just played with the art which is really cool because it's it comes across thanks to how like uh, you know nuanced the emotion that uh smith is able to convey yeah and the interesting thing too what you're talking about sort of the the wordiness of claremont which is something that you know people will you know fondly joke around about you can usually tell a page that has been written by Chris Claremont because of the amount of word balloons and just how dense the content is in each of them yeah. I always feel like that letterer Tom Orzachowski was chosen because he could write a little bit smaller <laughs> than everybody else yeah there, I just yeah. like I would love to talk to him and just be like you know how did you get it to you know <laughs> did you shrink it down or <laughs> something but it's you know it, it's so wordy because there was just so much to tell, yeah, you know, there, and I, when I talked to Chris a few years ago, I, that's what I said to him: is like, I have 
I have no doubt in my mind, I've read more words written by you than any <laughs> other person. Just yeah. because the sheer number of words, but also 17 years yeah. of the X-Men. Well, uh, I think it's kind of refreshing today because a lot of comics, you're just like flipping through and you read them in, you know, whatever, yeah. five minutes. It's it's a more sizable, like substantial uh, entity, each issue of a Yeah, comic. A- amongst one of my least favorite time periods of comic book reading was the... Spider-Man book just called Spider-Man, the Todd McFarlane written mm. and drawn. And that first issue, it has, it has very few words. There's yeah. not much happening. It's all, look at how cool this is. Don't yeah. you like Venom? I'm like, no, I'm kind of getting tired of Venom already. <laughs> and uh, I, I, that, I don't know, that's just not the kind of storytelling that speaks to me. Mm. And, you know, I love the more classic style. You know, I'm definitely more of a Dave Cockrum guy mm. than a Todd McFarlane guy. I think in the moment, I loved all that stuff when it was new. But, you know, I like artists like Ron Friends, you know, guys who sort of draw in more in the the Jack Kirby style. Yeah. But we sort of backtrack a little bit. Now, we're talking about all this stuff that Chris did, and obviously he collaborated with all these great artists. But I was really interested in the segment of the film that deals with the collaboration he had with two editors in particular, mm. Louise Jones, who becomes Louise Simonson, yep. and Anna Senti. And, you know, talk a little bit about them. And there's just, a, I guess there's two sections of the film where they're all together, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, those are my favorite parts of the movie, just because you can just see that these are people who, well, you know, we're in the trenches together yep. a while ago. And there's, you know, anything that maybe if there had ever been any bad will is long gone. Yeah. And they're just having so much fun talking about it. That's, yeah. for me... That's the part that uh, I, I really enjoyed the most in the film. Well, I think it was kind of uh, almost analogous to like what a, a writer's room is today, where it was Chris kind of bouncing a lot of things off Louise. So Louise started around the Dark Phoenix saga and wound up editing uh, probably till around like Paul Smith started, yeah. I think. And she, uh, you know, like loved comics and went on to write with him and kind of be the, the other writer of the X-Men universe. So right, she took she over would, New Mutants. Yeah. She kind of salvaged X-Factor from the mess of uh Yeah, it was problems. only like five issues that, yeah. uh, uh, what was that uh, author's name? Was that his name Bob ba- Layton? Bob Layton, yeah. Yeah, so. and, and, you know, they, it was like already, you know, a sinking ship. Yeah. And, and then she's just like, just so happens in her first issue to create Apocalypse, Yeah, by so the way. she created yeah. Apocalypse and she did a lot of um, the crossovers. She wrote yeah. a lot of the famous crossovers. Uh, and Senti, I think, is, is interesting because she came from outside of comics. And was, I, I love her story where yeah. she's like, you know, we want to hire you. Can you tell me what it is? Nope. And she's like, all right, so it's porn, <laughs> which I thought was great. Yeah, but she's like, whatever. Um, so I think she had a lot of more eclectic interests and was not somebody like I think a lot. Most people, especially today, who get into comics are kind of people who are like, I've always wanted to work in comics. The only thing I ever want to do was edit comics. I love these universes. So she came in with a, a different outlook and a little more avant-garde style. And I think it reflected in the stories that Chris did at the period because he did a lot more experimenting. Um, she oversaw like Bill Sienkiewicz's New Mutants, which is very out there. And, an and that's level. the period where we have life death in Uncanny yeah. X-Men, which it's, you know, basically Forge and Storm on a date right after she loses her powers. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything even remotely superhero-y and it's a double issue unless I'm mistaken. Yeah. And yeah, so that, and it's interesting because I didn't really, I don't know, in my mind I didn't think about it, especially because mm-hmm. I was reading those in real time. Yeah. But you're like, oh yeah, she was really there for some, yeah. and I'm 
talking about, uh, was there for some amazing stuff that I, was so different. I think those are probably my favorite. Like, obviously, I love Dark Phoenix and stuff, but I always I love those more kind of like experimental issues of the the Anne era. And I think she pushed Chris a little harder than the other people did to get out of his comfort zone and kind of try different things. And I think it was a very a very like collaborative relationship. And I think that's what you see in the film when you see them all together is that they all really respected each other and had very different points of view and came together to tell these stories. And I think you can see sort of the decline kick in when Anne leaves to go write Daredevil and kind of do her own books as Which, a writer. Which, by the way, as a writer, she has a great run on Daredevil. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's it's, it's it's I think it's right after the Frank Miller Born Again storyline. Yeah, I believe it's, so. It's almost right after that. And it, it manages to just sort of keep it going. Mm. You know, I think that she might have introduced toy, Typhoid Mary, but she did, I, I, yeah. yeah, I was just saying, I don't think I've read those books in, in you know, many decades. But mm. um, so one of the things, sort of what we're talking about, I actually I have a question from uh, a listener of the Black okay. House because I turned people onto this documentary. Nice. Uh, Rachel was wondering sort of the time frame of these these interviews because mm. you can see like there's multiple sessions, as you said, with Chris, Anne, and Louise. Yeah. And then there's definitely different sessions with Chris. So. When do you first start filming and yeah. when are, you know, so what's the whole process of filming these interviews? Um, well, this one was kind of a little different than the other docs I had done because I actually started the first interviews we did were back in like 2009 or 10. Um, so a long time ago now. Yeah. And um, it was kind of like trying to figure out the shape of the movie and what it would be. And so we wound up doing a, a shorter version of like 40 minute version that came out, I think, in 2013, because um, we had like done a Kickstarter campaign and wanted to get stuff out to the people. And then the opportunity came up a couple years ago to uh, somebody wanted to put out an expanded feature-length version. And in the interim, I had produced a doc called She Makes Comics and also produced uh, and directed, in this case, The Image Revolution. Which oh, was about all those image about titles. All the so image all guys. the artists we're talking about who branched yeah. off. Yeah. Um, so I had a kind of a lot more context and some more interview stuff to draw on. And I had also been like, oh, there's a lot of cool things that I didn't include in this shorter version of the movie. Um, so I went back in and kind of expanded it out a lot and put in um, the stuff about kind of Chris's background in England and more stuff about kind of like Jim Shooter's background, which is pretty yeah. crazy, and Anne's well, background. Let, let's, let's put the brakes on what we're talking about right now because... I love this. Talk yeah. about Jim Shooter's background, who's a figure that, for a lot of people, they'll talk about Jim Shooter as like, Ugh. you know, he was the editor in chief, so yeah. he had a tough job. And Chris talks about butting heads with him. Yeah. But at the same time, you feel like he has a lot more disdain for people later in his life. I think run. he had a lot of respect for Shooter because yeah. I think Shooter didn't want to make good stories. So Shooter basically grew up around Pittsburgh, yeah. kind of like a Rust Belt town, and he was like, I want to get a job to help out the family. I like these comic books. Why don't I try to write comic books? And he was around like 13 at the yeah. time. He wrote a script, sent it in, and they were like, okay, we'll publish this. Yeah. Which is like insanity. To th I, he's talking about that. I'm like, okay, so he sent it in and they laughed at him and threw it away. Yeah. And, like, and, and they printed it. And yeah. so he did a few of them, right? Before yeah. somebody actually gets on the phone with so, him. So yeah, then they get on the phone with him and they're like, why don't you come into the office? And he's like, well, um, I don't know. <laughs> and then they're kind of like, uh, how old are you? So eventually, like, they talked to his mom, and they wound up... So he wound up writing a lot of Legion books when he was in high school yeah. and into college. And by Legion, you mean uh, DC's of Legion? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Legion of Superheroes. And then he... Uh, 
eventually became editor-in-chief of Marvel, but he was very young at the time. I think he was in his 20s um, when he was running uh, in charge of yeah. Marvel. Um, and all, all you know, if you read, you know, if you're reading the actual physical back issues, you'll see the bullpen bulletins and yeah. things in there, and it'll be about people who worked at Marvel, and there'll always be little shots or cartoons of, of yeah. shooters is very tall, and yeah. and they always kind of talk about that. But also, one of the things that I know he instituted, which if you look at comic books from the '70s, you'll realize at a certain point, I'm talking about specifically Marvel versus yeah. DC. No word balloons on the cover. Mm -hmm. He was like, the the picture should be able to tell you what's happening. You yeah. don't actually need. And you, I think that there were exceptions, but and when you look at it and, and you look at older comics and you look at some some DC comics from there, you're like, yeah, that really doesn't need to be there. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just like it'd be great just to have this awesome picture on the cover. Yeah, and it seems like such a simple thing, but it's like I think that's just the way mm -hmm. he thought about it. Is like let's tell good stories, let's yeah. have good pictures that'll sell the story, and you know, I mean, obviously there's. I don't know. There's a lot about sort of when he had to leave uh, Jim Shooter, but it seems like he's such an important figure. And I love the fact that he's writing comics as a teenager I, for DC. It's crazy. It, it, and it was not like a common thing at the time. Because I, I asked him, I was like, is this something that was like uh, happening <laughs> often? And it was not like a normal uh, thing. I, I think Paul Levitz was pretty young as well, but like it, it was by no means like, you know, what, what you would expect. Yeah. And so... Back to Dark Phoenix Saga, there's a conversation in the film that originally, I guess, Jim Shooter feels like, well, maybe Gene should go to prison. Yeah. And then Chris is like, no, I'll kill her. And then Jim's like, that's a great idea. And then Chris yeah. is like, well, actually, I was just kidding. We know that's yeah. not a killer. Uh, and then I guess there's a little question as to whether or not it's Shooter or Jim Salakrat. But somebody's like, well, you have to, you have to punish her for killing these what they call asparagus people which i think yeah. is on candy 135 there's it's a it's you know gene where the phoenix force devours a star so we see an entire planet die yeah yeah and it's like you have to be punished for that yeah and to take the stakes of that seriously i think is why that story is so important and why why she had to die really yeah i think it's something where it, it just makes sense from a story perspective um but anyway, so to get back, so bas yeah. basically the interviews were shot between about 2009 or 10 and 2015 or so. Okay. So yeah, because it doesn't look like it, you know it doesn't look like there's stuff from the '80s, and it doesn't look like it's that long ago. But you can see that there's some different sh sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it was interesting. It's good that you were able to get them all together. And so, yeah. how do you originally start doing this? Do you just email like um, Chris directly? Yeah, because that's I, that's how I got an interview with him. I, I sent an email through his website, and I believe his wife handles all that. Yeah, she and, handles. And kind she of wrote she wrote back things. to me, and I was like, I don't know, I didn't. I didn't expect to yeah. ever hear back is really what it was. I was like, well, let me try. Well, you know? I, I think um, for me, kind of the, the impulse for doing it was um, it, it's just like I feel like Chris's story. Chris is not very widely well known outside of the comics sphere. And I, I think he's it to some degree almost like I think like Jack Kirby was in the 90s where people are like, the, you know, obviously they're like he's a legend. They respect him, but he's not. I don't think he's treated with sort of like the gravity that somebody who did what he has done should be treated with and kind of valued as like a truly, you know, uh, for me, 
I mean, obviously, like, Stanley created so many characters and is such a legend of the business, but yeah. there's so many divisiveness about, like, what did he create, etc. What did Jack create? Steve Ditko hated um, him. Jack Kirby hated him. Yeah, allegedly. Yeah. You know, all these people ultimately, and supposedly, like, Jack Kirby, like, really hated him. I mean, if you read, like, the Fourth World and the uh, Funky Flashman story, at, at least in the 70s, there was yeah. a ton of animosity. Yeah, um, I, don't, I, don't, I, like, I don't know how it got at the end of Jack's life, but uh, you, you just um, get... But I, so I think when it comes to X-Men, it's like Claremont is that universe. And I think he did, you know, I was curious to kind of talk to somebody who did this and created this thing that's becoming more and more a part of like our cultural mythology. So I, I don't think it's unrealistic to say in a hundred years, they'll be rebooting X-Men in some format. It will still be, you know, they'll be doing another Dark Phoenix saga. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, how many how many hamlets have there been yeah. you know, hundreds of years later? I, I mean, I think nobody would have imagined, like, you know, 50 years ago that, like, Black Panther would be a, a phenomenon as a movie. I, nobody was thinking that. Nobody, when Chris was writing these books, was thinking we're going to be a movie in 30 years. Or even, like, these books will still exist in 30 years. I mean, they probably seem they'd be in, like, the recycling bin so or or the crash because they never right, recycle like why would you why'd you Why would you recycle in 1975? Yeah, which, you know, how many of the comics that went before? that did end up in the trash. Yeah, I mean, most, I feel like the majority of comics from the 60s and before were thrown out by, like, people's moms, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I know for a fact that's what happened to my dad, you know? He yeah. had comics and then it's like, okay, well, you, you know, you read that and it's gone. Yeah. And, and I, of course, hoarded everything. Yeah, I yeah. still have about 3,000 um, comics, but, uh, yeah, and it, it's, it, it, it's interesting. Do you get the sense that Chris at least comes close to understanding the impact he had, or is he just so quick to be like, well, Stan and Jack created it and it was collaboration, yeah. or does he does he realize on some level, like, you know, this was you, yeah. right? I mean, I think to some degree, I, I think it's hard for him to have perspective on it, um, and I think he's kind of, like, humble by nature, yeah. which is, like, the thing, it blows my mind that, like, a couple months or a year after being fired from the X-Men, basically by Jim Lee, he was willing to go work with them at Image, which is, like, yeah. I, I would not be... Uh, ready to be like, I would have been like Jim Lee, you know, I'm never working with you. Like, but I, I think he, I think he had more of kind of like an employee mindset. I think he feels a ton of ownership over the characters and over yeah. the stories, but I don't think that he would position himself in the way, same way Stan has where Stan is like in, you know, ubiquitously selling himself as the face of Marvel. I don't think that Chris has an interest in selling himself as the face of X-Men even though I think he could. I think he yeah. should be, you know, cameoing on all the movies. As and... much as I didn't like X-Men The Last Stand, I was glad that Chris got a cameo in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, which I, I um, you know, look, Stanley deserves to have every cameo, but I'm glad that at least once Chris got yeah. one. Uh, the... The thing that you're talking about sort of, you know, essentially getting fired by Jim Lee, you know, when yeah. I had you on Marvel TV Weekly, there, there were some comments in the chat after the fact that, uh, one, I love to hear myself talk, and two, I should have let the other uh, panelists chime in. And I did feel bad. I apologize to them. I was just so excited. It's something I'm so passionate about. And when you yeah. do these shows for After Buzz, as opposed to the Blackcast, you start, and there's a countdown clock that says, yeah. like, 45 minutes. So yeah, I'm like, yeah. I want to get to all of this. I get it all in, yeah. Uh, but... My co-host, Michael Shirley, uh, who's going to be on the Blackcast in the near future, he mm. wanted to know, did you get a sense, if maybe not now, but did they talk about Jim Lee and, and maybe the uh, Bob Harris, the editor? Yeah. Do you get the sense that, it, like I said, maybe not now, but at the time that they just hated these people and they were just well, trying to soft sell it a little I, bit I mean, now? I think Anne, well, the one thing she said was like, 
I, I, she was basically like, I created Bob Harris because like, he was my assistant. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then I kind of like stuck him on you. So she was saying, I mean, they didn't go like super in depth on this, so I don't want to put words in their mouth. No, but she but was I basically like, he moment, was like yeah. quiet, like little, kind of like, you know, nice Bob Harris, then sort of became, you know, not like became a monster, but uh, took over to some degree and sort of, he wasn't as in tune with their, the partnership that they had. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it was just it it was just like extra cooks in the kitchen, a kitchen that was running fine, and then yeah. all of a sudden you get other people coming in and yeah, yeah. But th- it seems like it, it's so far in the rearview mirror now yeah. where it's probably if you had talked to the three of them in 1992, it might have been a very different conversation. Yeah, I think they were all aware of the nature of the industry and the nature of what Marvel was, which was that you're not going to own these characters; they are the companies, you know. And I, yeah. I think that. People today don't create. They nobody. This would never happen again because nobody's going to invest their life's work in something they don't own in comics. Even though, I mean, you could argue like with such a great booming film franchise, you're going to get more money or exposure or whatever in the long term by making new characters that can be turned into movies by Marvel. But yeah, and I know that you know after the fact, I know Chris went on and he worked for DC and he did a title called Sovereign Seven that mm-hmm. I read because I liked him so much. Yeah, and I think he it rebooted once or twice. It never really caught on. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have some of the image characters, to me, Spawn's the only thing that really stuck and is still yeah. like you know at least everybody knows what it is. I think a lot of those books ran for a yeah. while and were somewhat successful, but it's it's so hard to do that. Like yeah. you know when you get to create and work with the X-Men or Spider-Man to then go off and like, okay, now I'm going to like do my own yeah. thing. I think it's, it's so like hard he to left start. it all on the table. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of analogous to like the Beatles. Like it was a moment in time and yeah. it happened and you know, like you might enjoy some like Paul McCartney songs that came out after the Beatles, but you're, it's not the Beatles. But when you think about like, you know, Paul McCartney is a great singer and he's a great songwriter. You know what I want to hear now? Silly love songs. Mm. No, of course not. You're going to want to, you're going to want to hear something from the Beatles yeah. or, or maybe, you know, band on the run, yeah. you know, but it's not going to be everything. And, and yeah, it's sort of a, kind of an interesting, I think know, there's, there's so there. much X-Men content that they wrote that you could, you know, you could read an issue a day and it would be like a couple years before you loop around. So yeah. you don't really need any more. I know there's part of me with everything being digital. I'm like, do I want to try and dive in from where I stopped reading and yeah. try and catch up? Is it, will it just it. be infuriating? But the fact that I wouldn't have to physically buy them, like mm-hmm. if I got, I assume if I signed up for Marvel Unlimited, I could actually read them. You know, yeah. now I don't know if that's true, and that would be infuriating if I if I couldn't get all the issues. You know, yeah. just they picked and choose. I, I'm I'm interested to sort of see where the characters are, but it's a great transition to the movies because. I feel like I get my fill for these characters by seeing them oh, in the movies. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I don't feel like I need to, you know, I, I see enough X-Men yeah. at this point. I mean, Legion and um Yeah, Legion, which movies. is such an amazing, I can't believe it's it, it's on television. Yeah. You know, just that it looks like that. You yeah, know? it's very wild. And I think it is very in tune with what Chris was doing in those stories and in other stories that were very kind of like this weird, like astral projection plane um he has a lot more like weird stuff buried in there than you might think. A lot of like uh, hallucinatory, very out there stories that you it's not what you think of when you think of Chris Claremont, but they're in there. Yeah, and I think that it, I don't know, I just think it's it's kind of a it's great to see the translation to the big screen, mm. you know. I know 
Old Man Logan isn't a Claremont story, but yeah. that Logan movie was so great. Yeah. And to see the character kind of realized at the end, you know, yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it is great that we're getting sort of these opportunities to see that. And, you know, Patrick Stewart's amazing in that as well. Yeah, you know, yeah, just sort of sure. getting to see old old Charlie, as it were, you know, at, yeah. the, at the end there. And talk a little bit, something that's in the documentary that I wasn't aware of beforehand, that there were a couple of false starts for getting X-Men movies mm. going. Like, I remember in the late 80s that James Cameron was going to yeah. do one and, you know, that which... I don't. I don't know that they could have ever found the money to get it quite right, but you know he yeah. sure did good enough with Aliens and Terminator Two. So yeah. I'd be fascinated to you know <laughs> to visit an alternate reality where that movie got made oh, and see sure. what it was. But talk about how there were so many stops and starts, and Chris finally took it upon himself to, yeah. to help. Well, I think in the '90s there was uh, there was a lot of development and like a lot of churn, and um, I think you could see. You know, if you look at the history of a property like Watchmen or Spider-Man, there were a lot of different efforts, a lot of kind of like big names circling around. Um, but I think Chris saw that they didn't really have like the take. They couldn't really get at the core of what it was. So he says he wrote kind of a letter to Fox and was like, here's what this is about. It's about kind of outsiders struggling to find an identity. It's about, you know, sort of like growing up. It's about these themes rather than just about superheroes fighting each other. And I, he says kind of that's what sort of gave him the the hook on which to hang the movie that ultimately, you know, became the Brian Singer X-Men movie, um, which I think is is pretty faithful to his books and has a lot of elements of, you know, the comics that he created. Yeah, I think that the first one, the one from 2000, suffers from the studio not being confident in it and not yeah. really spending money on it. Yeah. You know, the fact that the big fight scene happens in the gift shop at the Statue of Liberty at yeah. the end, you're just like, boy, just imagine what that could have looked like. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the the second one might be my favorite mm. uh, because it, it's fairly faithful to one of my favorite stories. It's hard. I've isolated several. It's my <laughs> favorite, so I have to say one of yeah. But um, Marvel God God Loves, Man, Five, kills. God loves yep. Man Kills. And I, I just they did such a great job. And look, you know, the, there's a lot of talk about Brian Singer now, but he is a great he's a great filmmaker. You yep. can say whatever you want and who knows what's true, what isn't. Yep. But the idea that, you know, the guy who did Usual Suspects is like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and yeah, tackle the X-Men. It, it was such it, a crazy idea to me. I'm like, well, yeah. great. You know, um, it's also it's a very common path that we see now of people go from kind of a, a beloved, you know, well-received indie to a big franchise yeah. movie. But it wasn't as common back then. It was I think it was an anomaly to think that somebody coming off like these sort of, you know, harder edge, very successful movies would go to X-Men. Yeah. And obviously for, you know, not again to delve too much into his private life, but it's it's right out there. We know that he is a gay man. And yeah. for him, he identifies with this because, look, if you were to take an X-Men script and you find and replace the word mutant with gay, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's the same story. Yeah. and Or, you know, minorities or just anybody who's ever felt yeah. different. And uh, look, to me... The Marvel characters in general were so much easier for me to identify with because they weren't Superman or Batman. And, yeah. you know, Tony Stark arguably is Batman. But you know what I mean. They're, they had these kind of problems. They're very rarely popular people. They're, you know, Peter Parker to me is the ultimate Marvel character. Yeah. Because, you know, Cyclops is essentially also Peter Parker, you know. Yeah. To some extent, Reed Richards is Peter Parker, you know. And, you know, various times, various X-Men have been like that. And I think that the X-Men just represents that 
isolation, that sense that, look, speaks to kids when they're reading comic books and teenagers. And I just feel like it works so well in the movies. And for Chris to just be like, look, this is all you need to do. Like, yeah. you know, and when they've gotten away from that is when they haven't worked as well. Yeah. You know, uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine uh, is not a good film. Yeah. And it kills me because I rewatched it a few years ago. Liev Shriver as Sabretooth is great. Yeah. But the movie's awful. I'm not yeah, trying yeah. to say the movie's good. And I was just like, I just wish he'd been in a good movie as Sabretooth, you yeah. know? And now there's been no Sabretooth since then, you yeah, know? Yeah. And it's almost like it's, it's too bad that they don't s- stick to their guns enough. I think that, you know, the Days of Future Past movie really was them trying to kind of get a reset on it. But God only knows what's going to happen now that, you know, there's this yeah. Disney-Fox merger. I feel like Disney is not invested in the success of these things that they weren't involved mm-hmm. with, Dark Phoenix and New Mutants. Well, I, I always feel like the X-Men doesn't make sense if it's in the context of the Marvel Universe. Because yeah. it's like, why are they so into all these other people and positive about them, but then negative about X-Men? And it just yeah. kind of raises a lot of questions that makes I, the metaphor less I, potent. I love when there's a storyline that, you know, just randomly, for whatever reason, Chris felt like, oh, you know what? Spider-Man makes sense here. And that's great. Yeah. But yeah, when it's when it's firmly rooted in there. You know, I like the fact that the, the Avengers don't trust the X-Men. That's very yeah. clearly represented in the Dark Phoenix saga. Yeah. Because Beast has to like okay I gotta destroy these tapes gotta turn this thing off and I don't want anybody to know that I'm gonna go hang out with the X-Men which is it's fascinating I I love that they're outsiders even amongst other superheroes that the X-Men are completely absent from Mm. the Civil War storyline in the comic books you know because it's just like no we're we're, you know we're not we're not getting involved you don't get involved in our stuff we don't get involved in your stuff and I think that I I can only imagine how uh, I just hope they do it right, is Mm -hmm. I guess what it comes down to. The characters I'm more excited about sort of getting back to Disney are the Fantastic Four, who I feel like... Well, I think that makes more sense in the context of the Marvel Universe. And I feel like they've been so mishandled on the screen that, you know, the Roger Corman movie is not (laughs) the worst Fantastic Four movie. There's something to be said uh, Mm. about that. Um, (laughs) One of the things that uh, we touched on briefly that I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, through no fault of their own, kind of the beginning of the end becomes these crossovers that yep. they did just for fun. Yeah. And I remember the mutant massacre and it being something that it, it was a big deal, but I just love the, the conversation. Louise Simonson's like, Hey, I want to play too. And yeah. you know, she, her husband, Walt was doing Thor at the time. Yeah. So even though it makes no sense for Thor to be involved in what's yeah, going on in the, there. in the Morlock tunnels, Thor is there. Yeah. And, that is the sort of thing that I like about the shared Marvel universe mm-hmm. is when it's like, you know what? They're all in New York. They're going yeah. to run into each other at some point. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, but I, so I love that. But each successive crossover event became less and less of an event. Yeah. I think that Inferno was kind of interesting. And then they start to kind of lose me as to which ones were which. You know, there was a, yeah. there was a Fowling's Covenant. And, you know, I, I don't know the timeline of them. Yeah. The Fall of the Mutants was interesting because people start to think the X-Men are dead. Yeah. You know, so but there it, was at least an impact to that. It's but. not even really a crossover. Like, the first two crossovers, the, the Mutant Massacre, was basically, like, stories that happened adjacent to each other yeah. and don't really cross over because yeah. the, the characters never meet. Like, uh, I think Lo- uh, Wolverine notices, like, Jean is alive. Like, he smells her in the oh, tunnel. Yeah. But I don't... They never actually meet. And then um, the Fall of the Mutants is just kind of a thematic 
they talk about in this the movie where they're like, we don't really want to cross over, but we're going to have just a thematic, like, banner of Fall of the Mutants for three, like, unconnected storylines. But then Inferno, I see Inferno as kind of almost like the finale of the, like, the whole years of saga because it yeah. does wrap up. It's a cool, it's a convoluted, but ultimately, like, satisfying story. That's It's a very big story, and it is the first real crossover where all the X-Factor, uh, old X-Men and the new X-Men are together. Right, they um, actually bring them together. And, and it's, it's story-motivated. Like, it, it makes sense that these people would cross over um, in this fashion. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, as I referenced earlier, Madeline Pryor is at the center of it, yeah. I think is it's fitting and it's fascinating. Um, one of the things that I know is that the character of Mr. Sinister was something very different what yeah. Chris originally planned. Like, when I was rereading the uh, Dark Phoenix saga in uncanny or sorry in classic x-men because i didn't want to touch the original issues i wanted yeah. to read the reprints <laughs> there's these backup stories and i completely forgotten about this that mr sinister was supposed to be the projection of a kid in the orphanage with cyclops yeah and he doesn't want scott to leave because he wants him to be his friend yeah. so he makes these things happen and that's mm -hmm. why he's got a dumb name like mr sinister yeah yeah and i'm just like oh this is so much more interesting than what they ultimately end up doing and, the, and again it's a product of chris leaving yeah and it's it just it makes me wonder and i i think i'm gonna get the opportunity to talk to him again in the near future yeah i'm just wondering like what are a few of those things that you were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get yeah, to that one day? And then it's just like, oh, yeah, no, I, I just I just couldn't <laughs> tell that story, you know? And, um, yeah, uh, well, I, I think Mr. Sinister, he has a really cool design. but He yes, looks cool. Yeah, um, I definitely agree with that. It's kind of, it's a very, like, the whole story is basically, like, uh, trying to make sense of what happened with Maddie and turning her into a villain because there's no other way to make it work. And it's like it's frustrating because I think she is a pretty compelling character when she's in X Men, and hanging out with the group in the like uh, the early the Sylvester era yeah. of the post Fall of the Mutants when they're kind of on the run. Um, yeah, which it's funny that was something that I thought of when specifically thought of when you talked about how so much of Chris's run the X Men weren't at the mansion. Yeah, uh, you know they're they're in the outback in Australia. And yeah, they, like teleport. Yeah, and it, it, I'm not quite sure why even, but it's just it's so different. And yeah, that, and you know they teleport into a mall and that's how they meet Jubilee and it's just it. I guess it was because he'd been writing for at that point I guess 14, 15 years. Yeah, like, I think he just wanted to keep different. It <laughs> yeah, I mean there's a long stretch in John Byrne where they're like on the road or they, they're presumed dead and traveling around the world. And it, there's just a lot of different locales and kind of things that happen that aren't just the people. It's not what you would expect of like, they live at the mansion and what have you. I mean, the mansion is destroyed several times. Several times. And, and I think it, it happens, you know, repeatedly. And, you know, yeah, there's times where it's like, well, you know, we're going to be underneath the mansion yeah. and then they rebuild the mansion. And uh, yeah, I know there's, there's so much that happened. But again, it's like, I don't, you know, somebody could do the math of the page count over 17 years. Like, how many pages yeah. of, of storytelling for yeah. X-Men and X-Men related things were there? I mean, it's and, a ton of stuff. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I'm such a huge fan of that run that it's hard for me to think about what's going on mm. since and to even I mean, even I, I don't think you need to because yeah. I, I think it stands alone. Like, that's one of the things that I, from actually reading it from, you know, the beginning to the end, it... It's a, it's not a perfect conclusion because there yeah. is a sense of, you know, the editorial hand coming in. But you feel like we have come full circle. We have reached an end point. 
and you don't I don't think you need anymore. Yeah, you know? I, I do have such an affinity for the characters though, mm -hmm. and I always will, that you know recently I heard that uh, Kitty and Colossus are gonna get married. Yeah. And I can't help but be excited about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I mean that's an interesting thing, which I, I think is touched on in the movie, that when she's introduced, she's thirteen and a half and Cyclops I'm sorry, Colossus is either seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, probably yeah. nineteen. And somebody was just like, you know, you can't have them dating, right? <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. You know, and to think now in 2018 that they were just like, yeah, so these superheroes, you know, one's 19, one's 13. What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah. Just you, you wouldn't get anywhere near that now. No. And it's too bad because I just, I, I, I I'm a sucker for that. I yeah. love the two of them together. And yeah, I love yeah. the idea that, and the funny thing is in 1979, Kitty Pride was 13 and a half. So what, you know, what is she now, you know, 35, 30, well, almost 40 years later is, hmm. is she going to be like, you know, 20? I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah it's Colossus fascinating. Twenty two. Yeah, something. exactly. Yeah. He's 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 just mm. starting to to shave. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I uh, anyway. So I really enjoyed uh, just diving into all this, and you awesome. got some great interviews, and uh, I was I was just so glad that uh, a friend of mine just told me about mm. your documentary. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I hope that you know, going forward, people who see it kind of appreciate what Chris did, and yeah. that it's kind of like a record of. Since I think these stories, you know, they might not seem that important now, but like in the future, you'll want to know where did all these characters come from? Where did these stories come from? So I think it's a cool opportunity to just find out from yeah. the people who did it, who did it. And I do think that the advent of streaming services mm. like Marvel Limited and Comixology, which is a little bit more selective on what they have, yep. you're able to actually be like, oh yeah, I've heard that there's a Dark Phoenix saga. Let me just yeah. read that now. You know, the the ease of getting it is something that I would have loved as a kid. The yeah, fact yeah. that, you know, there there were no stores that sold back issues in my town. Yeah. You know, so like I would, if I could go, go to a convention and get like Days of Future Past, I was so excited, you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah. So the idea that you can just access all of this. Yeah, and, it's either a subscription or you yeah. get it in the cheap books or more expensive books if you want yeah. to. There's a lot of options, which is cool. So the movie that we've been talking about is Chris Claremont's X-Men. It's video on demand, Amazon, iTunes, the Google store as well for yep. the uh, Android users. Yep. Uh, your PatrickMeany.com is the website, yep. at Patrick Meany. Um, I did want to take a couple minutes as we wind down here. I wanted you to talk about the horror movie that you've directed, okay. House of Demons, and also available the same way, right? Same way, yeah. Video on demand, and all that, yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about some of your your influence on you know some of your favorite horror movies, even as a kid or more recently. True. Just sort of what your influences were and how you approached telling the story. Um, well, I think from from a horror movie perspective, I mean, I love like The Shining is one of my absolute favorite movies, and I think the the premise of the movie is sort of about a house that is. Uh, it's kind of a point in time where strange things happen. A point in space time where kind of Things can blur and the subconscious manifests and time gets a little wonky. So the the Shining was definitely an influence in I love the way in the film it's sort of it's unclear, like is he going to the twenties? Was yeah. he always there? What is the deal? And it's um, fascinating by the way that Stephen King hates that movie. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean it's not his vision, that's probably why, but I was just like I can see that you're just like, well, it's different than what I wanted, mm. but he hates it. Yeah. I mean, having read the book, I kind of understand it because I, I think the book the character, I think, is basically him, like, whether he knew it or not at the time. Right. And I think it's – the movie is more about, like, a crazy person who is, you know, unleashed in this space, whereas the book is more like the gradual fall of this guy into insanity. 
So I understand it, but I mean, it, it's such a great movie, and I think you can like them both. Um, yeah, because there's also the there's also the TV uh, movie version with Steven Weber, which yeah. he apparently liked more. I personally don't know anyone who's seen both and been like, oh yeah, that miniseries one is that better. Is superior, it, it's yeah. just different. I, I don't necessarily trust his taste in movies. I mean, most of the <laughs> movies based on his books are very bad. Uh, right. I've <laughs> actually had the theory uh, that Stephen King short stories make great movies. Mm. Stand By Me was The Body, yeah, uh, Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption, Redemption, and there's one other one. Uh, one of the there's a short in Creep Show Two, I think that's a story of his, which mm. is it's the the creature that lives under the raft. And I was just like, yeah, his short stories are great. Yeah. It's when you, you know, uh, although I think yes, I think Green Mile is pretty good. But anyway, it's it's hard. There's so many that are just like, you know, wow, they could have been better. Yeah. Like I read Pet Cemetery. I was so excited that there was a movie. I'm like, well, wait, wait, what happened? <laughs> Other than a cool Ramon song, I don't know what yeah. there really was to it. You know? I mean, the Dark Tower was a you know a disappointing movie for oh, me. Yeah. I feel like was uh, you know which could have been an amazing franchise it, it, had like, it been done right. It's the most baffling 2017 decision because they basically cut off the first book is a perfect like standalone yeah. story that is also an entree into a wider world and then they were basically like we're doing it all in, in one, one 90 minute movie for yeah. some reason so you know um, but anyway so The Shining was a big influence I think a, a huge influence for me was kind of like Vertigo era comics like Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman because I think a lot of it uh, that I like about comics is how weird things can happen and it's a sort of a more fluid universe where like the subconscious is closer to the surface and i think you even see that like one of the things that inspired me from chris's work was there's a story in fall of the mutants where storm and forge in the middle of like a fight are on like an alien planet and they see sort of like alternate versions of themselves oh, growing okay. old yeah. and i was like that's such a cool concept and uh, it's just kind of like using I love like movies and comics that sort of bring the mind external and make people sort of like confront, in this case, like their demons as literal things rather than, you know, just right. thinking about it. Which is literally what Legion is, you know, it's yeah. all the, the terrible things from your mind manifesting yeah. themselves. Yeah. Um, so I think that was like a definitely an influence. And I, I think comics, for me, it's, it's like we've seen so many superhero movies, but I don't feel like I've seen things that really capture uh, that sense of like what it was like to read Sandman or what, you know, a lot of Grant's work has. Um, so I think that was a big influence in terms of just wanting to make something that was about characters and was grounded, but has a very strong like supernatural uh, representation of their internal right. struggles. And prior to that, you had done a lot of documentary work. Yeah. Had you directed any kind of narrative you know, um, story before? Yeah, I mean, or? I've directed like a lot of short films okay. and I did a web series um, that was very way too long. Um, <laughs> but it was a great learning opportunity. So I had directed a lot of stuff, but this was kind of like the first thing that had a you know sizable budget or not even for most it would be a nothing but for me right. it was and a bigger budget did you self-finance or were you able um, to do we Kickstarter got investors or, okay um and then you know had to kind of make up a little bit of the difference on the end right but um it was a great time shooting like it was very fun a lot of the actors are big in kind of the geek world so we have like uh Amber Benson who was on Buffy uh, as Tara and uh Talison Jaffe who's huge now on Critical Role um uh, Chloe Dykstra uh, a lot of people kind of in this world who understood what we were doing with the movie. And I think it's it's something where it's a movie that, like, you either, like, really respond to it or you're kind of like, I'm confused. 
which I think a lot of comics, like a lot of Grant Morrison or Neil Gaiman, I think is also like that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it, it's something that you're able to do a lot easier in comics, but with yeah. movies, of course, it's like, well, we can't have we can't have people walking out of the theater confused. Yeah, they need to know what happened. So it's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure to be able to kind of take the opportunity to do that. And it only came out recently, right? Because it when, came out a couple months ago. Yeah, when yeah. I talked to you the last time, it was like it had like just come the out same day as the the Claremont. Doc, yeah, uh, so it was a, so. it was a busy day for you. Now, yeah, it was exciting. Uh, in terms of some of the other documentaries, you did one yep. on Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman, yes, and uh, and some of the others are they also out there? Or yeah, uh, so Neil Gaiman is available on Vimeo on demand or on Stars. Um, like if you if you if you subscribe to Stars, yeah, it's there on demand. Or, yeah, yeah, so okay. you can get a free like seven day trial if you want to mm -hmm. watch it for free. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, look, it's funny because I have a I have a friend who works on that J.K. Simmons show that yep. they do, and I'm like. I gotta, I gotta wait till the season's over, and then I want to do my my free seven day trial and watch all of them. Yeah, there you so go. So that's well, you a great opportunity. Yeah, in there. right. Um, well, because the American Gods is on the channel as well. So oh, they, right. Of they course, they licensed it, which was pretty cool. But that was a fun project. It was a little different than the others because the bulk of it is kind of following Neil around on this like epic book tour that he did, which he was like, "This is my last book tour because it's too draining." <laughs> so it might not sound that crazy, but like he was. Like, he had to ice his hand in, like, a bucket from, of ice from water signing. from signing. And he met all kinds of crazy people, so it was fun because we would be going around, and then all of a sudden we'd be like, oh, there's George R. R. Martin. And then, like, he would be talking with George. We'd be filming it. Wow. Or he met, like, Grant Morrison at one point. Um, there's a brief uh, Chris Claremont cameo in there. Look at that. <laughs> so him and Neil are good friends, actually, which you might not imagine. Neil read a lot of Chris uh, as a kid or, like, you know, as a younger person. Yeah. Um, and I think he was influenced. So I think I think it is interesting with Chris. There is a channel of influence to people like Alan Moore or Neil or kind of this next generation that you don't associate with his work, but were you know heavily influenced by. Yeah, it. and I think that's sort of the interesting legacy as we do finally wind down with, <laughs> about Chris Claremont is just the amount of people that are influenced by it. You know, even yeah. even say artists like Jim Lee that he clashed with initially, I'm sure they wanted to, like you said, draw these characters because yeah. they loved them, you know? Yeah. So that so many people who have come and gone from comics and movies, yeah. just this is such an important part of them. And it's interesting to think about the fact that, you know, like you said, you're entry point was the animated series and yeah. then there's plenty of people who first discover them in the movies and then yeah. maybe also read the comics and it's just something about these characters that especially when you get to something when you're young yeah. you're just always there you yeah. know and they're always going to be important to you yeah. no matter what you know I mean you can you can explain to me all the reasons why the band Kiss isn't great but I <laughs> found them when I was a kid and I, I will always have yeah. a soft spot it, for those it's guys it's hard to be subjective about yeah. stuff because e I think even if it's as good you don't have the same response because you've seen so much more stuff or yeah. heard so much more and stuff so that's why it'll be interesting sometimes when you talk to somebody that you know has been with something from when they were yeah. a kid I'm like man I'm just not into it and they're like, I don't understand. How can yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's people can't imagine that I'm just not really that interested in watching Game of Thrones, is just the example that I use because I'm sure it's great. <laughs> but I'm just like, ah, at this point, oh, I'm not man. getting in late, you know, but that's, no. you don't, you don't have to support that statement. I'm just saying okay, that's, yeah. that's my own personal no, thing. But everybody has the one so, thing. Somebody was like, you've never read Harry Potter? Yeah. And I was like, I, I was kind of too old when yeah. I, it came well, out. And that's, that's exactly the case for me. I never read Harry Potter. Yeah. yeah because, um, yeah. I, so I, I was like, I, I was 16 or something. I didn't want to read yeah, Harry well, Potter. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
mean, I, w- I was, I think the first book was 99, I think it was, tw- so I was 23. And I was like, I'm not going to read this book. I was like an adult man. Kid. You don't yeah. want to be like going to the Yeah, and I, I knew people that were, and I'm just like, ah, have yeah. fun with that. And then you're like, oh, I guess, guess that's some, some good storytelling yeah. there. Huh, huh, who knew? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, everybody has a blind spot yeah. for uh, everything. But um, uh, Well, I could say real quick, so sure. also available on yeah. Amazon Prime is uh, The Image Revolution, which is about the founding of Image. So that's kind of a good, like, pick up from where Claremont left yeah. off because Claremont basically ends at the the rise of these image creators. So then you get to kind of see and, and, what happens and to And they all cut and run within only a few years. Ironically, yes. Yeah, um, uh, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, and leaving somebody else. Silvestri, yeah. Uh, yeah. Jim Valentino, Air Right, Force, those, those three are the big ones, but yeah, yeah. then there were um, a lot. And I'm going to admit, I'm completely in the dark on this. Is Image still around and still publishing it's some still of those going. titles? Not those titles. Not those titles, it, okay. It basically, uh, the image that was gave way to more of like a creator-owned right. uh, kind of just label. Um, Which I think that that is a lot more commonplace. You know, the fact that, you know, it wasn't a success, but I referenced Chris Claremont doing that series Sovereign 7 for DC. Yeah. They didn't let creators own their content, at least yeah. not in the DC universe. You know, no. there were like the the Vertigo, um, the spinoffs and stuff, the 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 sublines. So yeah. I think it is a lot more common now that people are given that well, license. The, the interesting, I mean, the story of the Image movie is kind of like they left for creative freedom and wound up sort of building their own studios that were like Marvel, where they're yeah. profiting off others' work. But so it's an interesting story, and um, I think Liefeld is like a fascinating and hilarious guy to listen to. Yeah, I I mean, interviews with him, and he has a great cameo in Deadpool. Yeah. I I just sort of love that. You know, Um, of course, Deadpool knows Liefeld, you know. He does a lot of, like, voices or, you know, impressions of people. Oh, that's great. His Todd is great. So (laughs) it's a fun uh, movie. And then you can also check out on Netflix is uh, She Makes Comics, which I produced and Marissa Stoddard directed. And if you want to hear more about... Louise and Anne, there's a bunch about them in there, um, and it kind of traces the history of female comic creators and fans from, like, the 50s uh, to the present day. Yeah, and I mean, at the time period where I'm reading comics, there are not as many female creators. You know, no, Louise and fans. Anne. Yeah, or fans. That's actually a great point. And, you know, they had some female-driven titles in the 70s, yeah. Ms. Marvel, Spider-Woman, those are the two that come to mind, but they weren't yeah. good-selling titles. And it's interesting how in the confines of the X-Men, you're able to have, there's definitely a time period, I think that we were talking about, the Mark Silvestri era, it's mo- more women than men in the yeah. X-Men. At one well, point. I, I think it was very unusual at the time, and I mean, still to some degree today, that like people are so excited about Wonder Woman coming out, or Captain Marvel, the movie coming yeah. out, when it's like, you know, Chris was doing this 30, 40 years ago. But um, I think that the, the thing the movie tells you is like a lot of, female readers and creators came in through the X-Men and that was kind of a gateway, be it the actual comics themselves or the the show. So, so even people you wouldn't think like Jill Thompson talks about, I think this is in the Claremont movie as well. Um, she was like, I felt like I was Kitty Pride, and that's why I'm an artist today. And you know, you know her from Sandman right. or more artsy titles, but that was the gateway. Um, so I think it's cool to see. And I, I think you can also see like each generation kind of there is a different book that brings people in so X-Men brought in a lot of female readers uh, Sam Man brought in a lot of female readers and then up to the present day there's all kinds of stuff 
Right. And so it's great. So all those are still available and uh, you can free to, to watch free to watch. I mean, yeah. hey, that, you know, what's what's free these days? Uh, yes. Hardly anything. Uh, and you can always find out more about everything at PatrickMeany.com. Yep. And it's M-E-A-N-E-Y. Yes. Just want to make sure everybody knows. And at Patrick Meany on Twitter. Yep. Uh, the film we're predominantly speaking about is Chris Claremont's X-Men, as I mentioned, Video On Demand, Amazon, iTunes, Google Play yep. Store. And uh, House of Demons is the horror movie. And all the documentaries you just mentioned. Well, uh, Patrick, I really appreciate you taking the trip out to the Valley again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, you've uh, been over here at AfterBuzz a few times. I appreciate uh, sitting down for this longer interview mm. because I knew I was never going to be able to get everything <laughs> in in Marvel Weekly. So I, mean, I it's, really it's appreciate it. hundreds of issues. To yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, thanks so much. And uh, that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Blackcast. Cast.